Hi everyone, it's Asher, and this is Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And I want you to keep listening and keep inviting friends, coworkers, and loved ones to listen as well. There are quite a few ways that you can support the podcast project. One very helpful thing beyond spreading the word and sharing the podcast on social media is to donate to my Patreon, and there's a link in the show notes for that. You'll be supporting the cost of production because this podcast is definitely DIY, but it also isn't free. I would love to continue expanding this offering and really making sure that the podcast is offering a space for a multiplicity of voices and experiences. And to do that, I do need your support. So thank you for those who have already supported in the ways that you can. And please, I invite you to support this podcast in other ways as well. So Today's guest has some really beautiful insight about queer healing, life on Broadway, and the immigrant experience, and many more things. Kay is a native of Japan, a non-binary person living in New York since 2009. He's a dancer, singer, actor, Along with freelancing as an artist, he teaches mindfulness and meditation for people in the entertainment industry and in nonprofit organizations. You can find out a lot more about Kay on his Instagram at K-E-I Pence. And here's my interview with Kay. Thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. I wanted to start by asking you a question that I'm asking all of the guests. How did you learn at an early age about having a body or what it meant to be in a body? Growing up, I was pretty active. My family did a lot of different sports. So I was putting like swimming lessons when I was three and um. I play softball throughout elementary schools and um, I play basketball and all that. So it it was there, but I, through playing sports, I felt the body, but it wasn't until when I started dancing when I was 18, how important it is to know that you're actually in the body versus just going through the action or activities as not knowing you're in the body. Yeah, it, it really made a lot of difference and brought a lot of joy and happiness when I was going through difficult time in the teenagehood. I guess everybody go through hardship. <laughs> but It's a rough time. Yeah. What, what kind of brought you to dance? How did you find dance? So I, I'm, I was born and raised in Japan. I went to Indiana. I guess I came here to the States when I was 17. Uh, I always sang or played piano 
but never knew about musical. And in the in the, the year we did the uh, sound of music as a school production, and I was the butler. <laughs> 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 and I I just loved it. I really loved the stage experience, and um, and I was talking to my friend back in Japan, and she took me to that. Oh, you have to you have to start dancing. So she took me to the dance studio, and I never laughed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, it's cool. It's a really cool story to think about kind of finding something that you you or we never knew existed you know I think that that's in some ways can be reflective of kind of finding out about your sexuality or how you experience gender you know the way I don't know when you were talking about softball I was just and like playing sports I also had that experience as a, a child like I was I was kind of very athletic and it it wasn't a very connected kind of movement in a way or being in my body and I think that was also consistent with how I didn't know really about my sexuality or, you know, didn't have a lot of freedom to explore my sexuality and gender and all of that. You know, it was, um, it wasn't until later that I really felt freed up to do that. I wonder if, if at all your kind of movement into dance and more embodied practice sort of happened alongside your discovery around that. Yeah. Like, yeah. When you said that you actually clicked to me too in a way for me it was kind of a virgin towards sports because my brother was really good at it and I was kind of jealous and my dad was a coach for a softball team so I was like forced like they never forced anything but you know like you feel like okay I have to and growing up you know I I guess I had kind of like innate chillness that like even when I was four oh, I like what I like. And like, I'm cool if I like pink or like if I like uh, dolls, that's that's what I like and I'm going to play with it kind of thing. So, and at the same time, you are learning the information that other people are giving you that, oh, this might not be actually suitable as a boy. So everything was forced and everything that I liked, I was, you know, twirling with the, ribbon on the chopstick in Japan um, uh, at home and that was kind of I mean my parents loved it but they would be kind of like embarrassed about it in a way I picked it up kind of unspoken way but there there was you know there's still like uh, ease and joy that brings through sports like I had like breakthrough when I got really better at softball like uh, (laughs) when I was third grade I was really bad at it up until then and like nobody really wanted to wanted me to be in the team but then one day I remember I threw this ball and it went so far everybody was like so surprised and that built confident a lot of confidence and then I became like almost like center of the team, like from then on, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. And I started playing basketball in junior high and I was like a co-captain and it, it just brought a lot of confidence and joy in a way, but it did not solve anything about sexuality or gender that I still felt weird being kind of like boys team. 
and that kind of the boundary kind of disappeared only when I started dancing because it's still female heavy industry in that way and the dance studio where I went mostly female dancers I guess and that made me feel a bit more comfortable somehow in some ways and that led me to going to LA and living there for a couple of years when early 20s that's when I first made take my gay friends there and being included and I found my first sexual encounter and my first boyfriend and you know it just dance really opened up my opportunity as a career and also just just as a human being and mm-hmm. coming term with my own sexuality and even gender stuff still I'm taking kind of steps and process even now at I'm 34 but yeah 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 I guess yeah there's something too and I I'm I think we all are kind of going through different ways of exploring this but I I can really relate to that that idea that in some ways you had to find I mean you had to find an environment where you could be more embodied and it's it's sort of interesting to think about you you know in this dance studio that was, as you said, was mostly women. And there was something about it that made you feel, there's something congruent about your experience there that opened up a lot of other possibilities and sounds like it was a more embodied experience. I feel like the part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is really understand what the quality of feeling embodied is. You know, what's the difference between like, like you said, playing sports, feeling good, you know, I'm good at it or whatever. And then having this other kind of more embodied experience with dance, like, and the, the fact that it helped you connect to different parts of yourself that weren't so clear earlier on. Yeah. And, and I'm not resentful about what was happening with kind of, yeah, toxic masculinity, like back then. And, it's just I, I'm I'm grateful that it came to it. Like it kind of unfolded in itself. That yes, it was hard, and I encountered some homophobic experience through high school and all the stuff. Even though when I was an out and uh, uncomfortable uncomfortableness of it, it was learning experience. It, I don't want to sound cliche, but it it really was. Mm-hmm. It was necessary to be here and like having, even for myself, um, kind of having yearning to create like community that people can feel safe um, through meditation or um, because I know the pain I, I want to support like, like this podcast or you know other other community creators I, I really do want to support so yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about meditation and how what your journey was you know kind of I really liked what you said earlier about um, when we were talking before the the interview about how dance kind of provoke this question 
how can I have this embodied experience in daily life? You know, how can I have the experience you have when you're dancing in day to day, like, you know, the mundane or whatever. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what you had to go through in order to find meditation as a practice. Yeah. I, it's funny, you know, as a dancer, you do crazy stuff on stage and in the studio and you walk out the street and like we trip, like dancers trip, like in the flat surface in the street. And what, what is that? The first I thought it was like concentration of it that, that brings it, everything together. But, and it, it really is in a sense, but it's more of this like light awareness, just like being open to whatever is happening because there's music there when you're dancing on stage or in the studio, there is music, there's, there's other people and there's like some choreography that you have to do. There's like a lot of aspects you have to kind of overcome or like be with. And in daily life, there's like you're planning, you're seeing, you're smelling and you're, you're hearing something or you, you have to physically do like wash dishes or something, then you can still be open to what's happening in kind of playful sense rather than so focused. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do every day to be aware the moment you wake up to when you fall asleep. That's, that's what I'm trying to do every day. And it's it's so easy to be aware um, in this mainstream mindfulness or meditation thing happening. It's it's really focused upon concentration and one thing. Maybe breath, maybe sound, maybe a body sensation, anything. And that's helpful. But in one sense, it's it's helpful up until it's not when it's affecting your daily life, daily activity, that's maybe too far, too much effort. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And how far, and we tend to over effort everything and we want to manipulate everything and mm-hmm. that, that, that leads to controlling and that's not helpful. Then how much can you be relaxed and just be aware? Like when, when seeing happens or hearing happens without your control, like I cannot not see you. I cannot not hear your voice only. You don't really have control over that. Just playing with that idea um, as much as possible. Am I aware every single moment um, that that's what I'm doing? And it's, it's, it's kind of sad to say like, uh, how I got to this practice is through breakup with my dance teacher and how kind of this mentoring mentorship relationship of like over 10 years kind of ended um, Mm. that brought like a lot of panic attacks and um, anxiety and depression. And Mm. I just couldn't handle it. I, yeah, um, I, I've been through antidepressant, you know, medication part of it, um, as well as meditation. And I still have, I still see therapists and um, yeah, it's just, I know it's not a silver bullet. Like that's meditation is not silver bullet, but it 
has helped me tremendously for for depression as well, but just day to day relationship with myself, my husband, my friends, and um, coworkers. Um, yeah, so it's it's been really big part of my life for five five years I think every day mm-hmm. yeah mm. I love that you're kind of bringing in this this more subtle or nuanced way of thinking about you know the function of concentration as a tool for learning and learning to be mindful and learning to sit and meditate but that you know it sounds like what you're talking about is really bringing a mindfulness to everyday life and that involves bringing in a lot of a lot of what we're experiencing like a more full picture of um for instance what you're describing and thank you for for talking about it um you know what you're describing as a really difficult sounds like traumatic painful experience um that that is there too. You know, the pain and the difficulty and the suffering and the anxiety are all there for so many people when they sit to meditate or when they walk to meditate or whatever, you know, and I think that gets discussed, but it doesn't, yeah, the way the wellness industry has sort of taken up mindfulness as a solution, you know, it doesn't take away from these experiences. In fact, it, it, I think what you're saying is it sort of helps you welcome in all of the things that are happening in your right. life, you know? And, yeah, it's easy, easier said than done. And I think, yeah, I think every everyone kind of says that any mindfulness practice, like we welcome yeah. everything. But at the same time, on the course of practicing, we we really forget that we're not trying to get rid of anxiety. We're not trying to get rid of depression. We, we're trying to understand them. Like understanding does not include pushing in a way that's not understanding. We just don't want, we just don't want un- unpleasant experience. And that's, that's okay. Like it's, my teacher, you just say it's okay that it's not okay. Like it's okay, not, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, can you, but can you be with it? And, and the concentration part, concentration really means to to state stabilization, like stability of the mind. Then it comes handy when it's so overwhelming and like mm-hmm. so painful, mm-hmm. and that's a safe place to go to. Um, that's why some people call it anchor. It's very anchoring. Um, but you can't just stay in safe place. <laughs> you know, you have to go explore. And I, I can relate to that, like the way I actually ventured outside of my home country and mm. how much I learned and but still yearning or sometimes I had to go back and like, I do want to see family. And but it doesn't mean that you stay there forever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hand in hand, two ways of this, this yeah stability and exploration Mm. um Mm. that's that's very very important and it's not it's not that again it's not we're not controlling what the mind does but it just acknowledging that naturally when when the mind is stable 
awareness really start to expand and you start noticing other things and different thoughts and that's 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 the course of nature and that's beautiful to see and having understanding is that's a that's a process Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so this might be a little bit of a leap but bear with me i when you said stability and exploration i think that's as someone who has been working on or experimenting with a mindfulness practice for a long time i i can really relate to what you mean by that this kind of what comes from you know the stability of a concentration and and presence a practice around presence but also the the power of being able to tolerate more in in your life, you know, tolerate more distress, tolerate more feelings, whatever comes up, uh, you have a little bit of an anchor, right? As you said, but then, then, you know, maybe you can speak to some of the ways that you've experienced both stability and exploration in your life. I mean, I'm wondering, you, you know, you mentioned that you're married and you have a husband and I'm wondering about kind of, maybe in that relationship, for instance, stability and exploration, like what this is making a lot of assumptions that, that, that marriage brings some, some form of stability. <laughs> um, and, but maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. It's yeah. This, this stability and exploration really goes with a lot of life experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we are married. We, we've been, married for two years and we've been together for seven years and we just opened up our relationship like last year so just having the I don't know it's it's really interesting and when you say when we all say stability we naturally start to grasp like uh, hold on to it like it's it's the life life source or like this is a lifeline we have to hold on to then so when we start to see other people we start to to see i mean i can only speak for myself but i i started to see how much i was grasping on this married relationship with my husband and also i started to see when i started to see new person how much of a grasping I start to do and it doesn't really make sense because this new relationship would be on the foundation that we my husband and I have open relationships so why why would that be a place to grasp like you can't but it's so natural that something good happens and like we want to hold on to it it's so natural and just noticing that and pause and okay this is not helpful then then I can have a space to actually see where this new relationship could go Um, and you know I'm sexual I'm sexual I'm sexually active so I had I've had like one night stand or like ongoing relationship for a while even then 
the exploration part of sexuality is such an interesting thing because it's it's not I don't believe in just having sex, like just physically having sex. I mean, you could, I guess, but that's kind of being delusional. There's, there's like this yearning and there's like um, one need for connection with other human beings and the need for intimacy. That's like, a, that's, that's very, very innate need. That's not bad or any or even good it just it just just is. like we have it yeah. <laughs> like you can't you can't take that away so fulfilling the needs in kind of healthy sense so that nobody really gets hurt when cheating or anything happens it really is not really about sex it's like it's it's much deeper than that like there's some other aspects that that's not being fulfilled like you're not being seen by your partner or you don't you kind of are needing a bit of more communication or honesty to each other respect and sex kind of covers it up and we're afraid to talk about it so we can't get we can't break through the wall of sex or sexuality to talk what is the fundamental issue here or mm. what do we need to needing to talk about a bit deeply and of course it's not it, it hasn't been just easy easy experience having open relationship in new york city with my husband but what has it been like it's it's a it's work <laughs> like i i saw that relationship really is at work and you you cannot have that solid thing and that's another exploration part. Like you have to understand, like I, I had to understand that anything that starts ends. Like if you start a relationship, it will end. Like maybe death might be one way to part, but it could be just growing apart or, you know, we just find out we we kind of changed and it does not it's not like healthy relationship for each other, then like we kind of, it's helpful if we separate or, you know, anything, but that's for anything. And with that understanding, even with that understanding, I still want to start something new. Then it's so, it's, it's, it's mm. such a weird, <laughs> uh, it's a weird thing that we have with this intimacy and community and like um yearning to be with somebody is is it's interesting thing so my husband and i have been trying trying to be as open as possible and that has been a lot of work a lot of just conversation um and i found out that it's a you you only have 24 hours a day and <laughs> there's not much time to communicate with if you have so many important people in your life like i cannot handle that i cannot handle like three or four partners that that's impossible for me <laughs> yeah that's what you yeah. found out <laughs> yeah <laughs> right right what is the what do you think the kind of I, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that um, 
there is sometimes a casualness in um, the queer community with which, or in, in general, but in, from what I know in the queer community around, like, let's just open it up, you know, let's, let's just, it, it kind of, a, it's, it's almost, uh, um, I guess, as a psychotherapist, as a person who deals with the kind of aftermath of that gesture, that's like very, you know, maybe on a whim or, you know, whatever we've gotten ourselves into, it, it is a tremendous amount of work. Um, and I really, I just appreciate you kind of speaking to that and it's a choice for people, but you know, it, 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 it is a lot of work and navigating. And I wonder, you know, given all of the work, what makes it seem maybe worthwhile for you right now? It's worthwhile that it reminds me of the care my husband and I have, like mutual care we have for each other. Also a reminder that the tendency or habit I have with relationship, um, it kind of comes forward more like a grasping or a jealous part or, you know, um, kind of <laughs> unnecessary sexual desire or those things comes up in the surface. So it's easy to acknowledge and detect and just have curiosity around it. I was like, oh yeah, this is, this happens actually. It, it looks like a pattern and let's look <laughs> into it a bit more. And it, it opened up for me that like you, any relationship is really unique. Like it's, mm. it's really true that a couple having open relationship, you cannot assume anything like what that means to them or for us until we really talk deeply and honestly, there's no way of understanding. And when it becomes, you know, casual, like, Oh, everybody's having open relationship or a poly then, but you can't assume anything what they're doing, what we're doing. We yeah. always have to speak and yes. communicate. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's being really eye opening for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also wanted to make sure we had time to talk about something that I'm curious about, which is what is it like to be a queer non-binary not American person in the Broadway world. <laughs> it's, hmm, there's so much to that. Um, it's just not even Broadway world, but it's tough. Like I'm discovering how tough it is just to be here in the United States. Hmm. It might be in just a, political climate right now or because all my family is back in Japan um I do have um in-law families nearby in Connecticut and that that's really being helpful regardless I just learned to be accommodating to living a different culture so even when I'm maybe when I'm just going about the day, everything is in English, right? That's not my first language. So there's like extra effort that I'm now, it's been like 17 years since I started living here. So 
it's less effort, but still extra effort that I'm putting in every single day. And now I'm clearly seeing how people of color are kind of treated or how even like for me, people assume something because I, I look certain way, like uh, racially. Um, what are the assumptions that you are, you think are happening? I mean, they... Or that you know are happening, basically. <laughs> I am quiet, and I am accommodating. And that's one way that I was brought up to in Japan, that to have a harmony with other people. But I am human. I have needs. And in, in Broadway world, or in, maybe in the States in general, it seems like whoever's loudest gets heard. It doesn't matter the intention of it and what you're going through, but as as long as you're loud and clear, you get heard. I don't think that's the way. That's I don't think that's a healthy way because what happened to those people who doesn't speak the language or it it's hard to speak the language or, but it doesn't mean they are less intelligent than. English speaking people, you know, but yeah, it's it, and those things hitting or it, it's being hitting me, I guess, but those microaggressions from people, I think it kind of tipped over past year or so, and I've been very, very tired <laughs> of just tired of being accommodating. Um, like why accommodating meaning putting my needs aside for other people. And it's myself that I, I'm doing it, but sometimes it's hard to engage with people with different cultural background because, I mean, you know, if even if I, I would be back in Japan, live in there, I would have different problems or different issues around living with people with the same cultural background. But it, it's been my experience that it's just, it's very hard. It's very, very hard, even especially when it becomes very not superficial, but you have to, in Broadway or in entertainment industry, you kind of have to look certain way or be certain way because it is a product that we're putting out there and for the audience. So when my accent or when how I look or how I move, how I conduct myself does not fit in the norm of American society, it doesn't work. Sometimes it works for my advantage when it when the show has specific um, role or something that just like I'm perfect for, but that's that's very rare. And it's a hard question. It's it's just it's been just difficult, and I I want to because there are more awareness towards equality and the gender race and 
not maybe not enough, but there are a little more in the mainstream. So I I want to help that healthy direction to keep going further. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but it sounds like it just even having to navigate that and all the other things you described about, you know, not, not being, not living in Japan and being an immigrant here, you know, it has taken a toll on you and, or it is exhausting in a way that you've described. And I, I wonder how you kind of maybe even in small ways, like how you take care of yourself given I mean, is part of taking. I wonder if part of taking care of yourself is in acknowledging how how much these microaggressions impact you. You know, is that does that feel helpful? And yeah, how do you care for yourself given all this? Uh, I I have a therapist and I have a loving husband. Right um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have friends and I I also have my my mindfulness practice every day and just knowing that hey it's usually I get hurt and I have there's a there's a version towards it like I shouldn't like why am I hurt um but that's okay I'm hurt and I'm hurt like I need to accommodate like not for other people that I need to accommodate my own feeling that's arising and it's not it's really it's not my fault that I get hurt it's not my fault that I get angry or it just it's just a natural process that's happening different causes like so many causes are there in the environment including my own body and mind and and then the as a result anger happens or frustration happens then that's not my control like if it's my control I wouldn't have any anger I wouldn't have any jealousy I wouldn't have any frustration then just yeah so just injecting those in the practice we call it like right view like what really is the right view like what is it so wrong view would be I I have I can't control this. Like I caused it or somebody else caused it. That would be a wrong view. And right view would be, it's just nature. Like it's just cause and effect happening and it's not my fault. Then, then there could be a space for me to maybe care for myself and go, go have a tea, (laughs) like go have ice cream, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, those kind of a helpful action could be taken. Yeah. So the last question that um, I wanted to ask is if you could kind of go back and connect with your younger self in some way and say something to your younger self or compel someone else to say something to your younger self what do you think you know your younger k would want 
or need to hear? I think he'd like to hear that. Just love whatever you love and keep playing as you like to play. Watch whatever TV show you like to watch. <laughs> hang out with whoever you want to hang out with. Yeah, I, yeah, I, not regret it, but I really do wish there was, there was a world for younger self that I could. I could hang out with girls just without any embarrassment for, I don't know, my parents or a question, or I could wear pink dress, or I could watch like a cartoon that's made for girls <laughs> and be in it. <laughs> um, I I did it. But there was no affirmation that validation that was yeah. okay. Yeah, permission yeah. or um, even enthusiasm around that. Like, yeah, that's oh, that's so cool. That yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, well, that's really beautiful. I like, I like that that wish. Um, so maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about how they can find out about you and and what you do i just want to plug the fact that you're on your instagram you have some beautiful really evocative drawings that are really amazing so people should definitely check that out but so how can how can people connect with you uh, thank you uh i'm on instagram uh, my handle is k pence k-e-i-p-e-n-c-e and I post a lot of drawings and mindfulness practice stuff, as well as a little bit of my singing and dancing and all that stuff. And also I have a website, keitsuruharatani.com. I don't know how to spell that out. It's a really long name, but it's it's just my We'll link it in the show notes, yeah. Dot <laughs> com. And um, yeah, I, I offer mindfulness meditation classes for... Uh, like a gratitude base so whatever you can give i i'm happy to do it free of charge and i'm happy to do it whatever you can give yeah i i i teach at the different studios um and non-profit organizations so yeah if you can just reach out from the website or mm-hmm. even dm on the instagram i'll be happy to talk or give a class mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for for doing this. It was lovely to speak with you. Thank you, you too. Yeah. 